0: The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. I was not a good student in high school. Uh, classes were a necessity. I knew I had to go to them, but socializing with my friends and, and being a teenager were about all I could handle. Uh, I didn't have the, un- but I did have the uncanny ability to temporarily learn just enough at the last minute in in a cram session where I did well enough to make good enough grades. But then I'd turn around after the test and I would lose more of the knowledge than I think I'd gained before I got to the door. It's not surprising then to hear that the most dreaded words that I ever heard from my teachers were, clear your desk, sending out some chills down your spine already, isn't it? Okay. Get a pencil and a clean sheet of paper. This is a pop test. Oh, you know, I, I had never, I never prepared for a daily class schedule. I always just prepared for the exams. And so for me to think that I was going to show what I had prepared, I had done and how much I would learned from day to day was just impossible. Uh, we find in, that in 1 Corinthians, that the, the Apostle Paul has told the church of Corinth to clear their desk and get out a pencil and a clean sheet of paper and get ready for a test. But before we go to that, I want to just review what's been said in earlier sermons about the city of Corinth. Corinth was founded on a small strip of land that separated two large land masses. It's called an isthmus. If many of you all hadn't been been in geography class for a while, all right, and um, it separated the Greek world. We're going to call it North Greece and Southern Greece. Now, Southern Greece they spoke with a drawl, but you know it. Uh, <laughs> but these two land masses were connected by a small strip of land. If you wanted to go from one to the other, you had to go, unless you took a boat, which was dangerous back then. You had to go through that small strip of land, which meant you had to go through Corinth. Not only that, but there were uh, two bays, of course, on either side of the isthmus. And you, when, when boats would come in and they would unload their, uh, their goods and then transfer it over the four or half, five-mile strip of land and put him in another boat, and they've saved months of traveling and go on. So, so there was a lot of commerce. There was a lot of things going on there. Uh, fortunes were made, and with great wealth, people began to, sh- to uh, show their great vices, sinful nature. All the while, they were expected them to be accepted by others because of their great influence. Sounds like today, isn't it? What little religion that existed were, number one, uh, there was always a Jewish synagogue most everywhere after the dispersion. And, uh, and other than that, the only religion that existed were temples that were built to the Greek gods. And usually if you wanted to worship there, you went and you, per, you participated in some sort of lewd sexual act. It was, not, you know, it was a self-gratifying kind of a thing. So we see that this is the kind of city... That these people grew up in. It it is it it was said that the city of Corinth would have been the modern-day New York City and Los Angeles and Las Vegas all rolled into one secular city. It was in the midst of all this chaos that Paul came. He was in Athens and he came to Corinth and established the church at Corinth. In Acts 18, we find that he shared the gospel with many Jews and Gentiles alike who were Christians of the city. Many believed in in the gospel of Jesus Christ and were saved out of the secular world. So that's what they were in, and they were saved out of the secular world. Uh, Paul would later send letters of encouragement to the Corinthians, which we know as first and second uh, Corinthians, and even sent Timothy to pastor the church later. But as Paul left the city for that very first time to go on and start churches all across Macedonia and Asia. The little church that met in a home beside the Jewish synagogue was left on its own. The people, though saved to a new life in Christ, uh, naturally drifted back into their old ways and, and their comfortable traditions. The spirit of the city of Corinth had invaded their little church like a virus. Every problem in the church that Paul addresses in the book of Corinthians was prevalent in the, that day's society. So Paul wrote his letters to Corinthians to, to, the, to the Corinthians to make corrections from this drifting away from what was supposed to happen in the church. And there were many corrections to be made. Our past week's studies have shown that there was a vi- wide variety of, of problems to be addressed. The church had come to look more like the city it lived in than the Savior who died for them. So we come to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be at. Chapter 11, verse 18, where Paul addresses the church's abuse of their worship services. And, may, and mainly their observance of the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul had taught them how to observe the Supper in order to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, but things, as I said, had deteriorated badly. Let's read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. For first of all, there, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Can you believe that? There were divisions in a church? Man, I'm glad, so glad we're over that. Oh, my. For there must be also be factions among you, that those who, approve, who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, Paul was saying, well, at least there are some people that are standing up for the word of God. At least somebody. There's, if there's going to be a faction, I'd rather it be because somebody's standing up for God. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, that's what they may have thought they were doing, but that wasn't the purpose because the Lord's Supper was completely different than what they were doing. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat? And Drink in or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you in the church's early years the Lord's Supper took a central part in worship and Was observed weekly in the services of the church. It was also a large a, a part of a larger meal that the church ate together Much like the first Lord's Supper was part of the Passover meal. Well, in the worship services, they got together and ate. That sounds like a church I don't want to be a part of. Okay, But it was a larger meal. It was more like a potluck supper uh, that we have. It was called a love feast. It was supposed to be a time of sharing and meeting the needs of others. But according to these scriptures, we find that people were bringing their own food to eat and not sharing it with others. At times, some less affluent church members stood by hungry and embarrassed, while the more affluent members gorged themselves on food and drink. Now, This caused divisions and hard feelings, which is the very opposite of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do. It's supposed to unite. The Apostle Paul goes on to remind the church of the correct way to have the Lord's Supper in verses 23 through 26. A passage that is well-known and is commonly used in today's observances, that like what we do uh, it, about once every six weeks or a month. I, but I would like to skip down to verse 27 here and read a passage that is not commonly read. It's about the seriousness of the Lord's Supper and the seriousness of our worship and the repercussions of observing it with a wrong attitude. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If we do it wrong, we're just as guilty as those who have killed him. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's a big word there. Listen as we speak and, re, uh, and repeat that word judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Wow. I read that the first time, and I said, you want me to what? You want me to preach? I have no idea. Well, I did a lot of research, and God showed me several things. And I want to take the, the rest of the time we have and camp out on these verses. First of all, Paul writes that this is a very serious observance that can affect our lives if we don't do it well. We read that many of the, the Corinthian church members were weak, were sick, and even had died, that sleep they talked about worked. They they had died because they had not taken this seriously. The church's very existence depended upon the work of Christ in His death and resurrection. The Lord's Supper had to be observed in an appropriate way. If you've been reading along in our daily Bible readings, you remember that we've just gone through a long passage in Numbers when, when the people had to go through extensive steps uh, just in order to be considered clean before God. And it's, it's pretty wild, the different things. Can't touch a dead body, can't do this, can't do that. You've got to go and you'll be uh, without for a long time until you consider considered clean. It's, it was pretty wild. Now, it's true that the New Testament church lives under a new covenant and doesn't follow those laws, but I think that we need to remember that the same God who wrote those laws is now asking us, the church, To come to our worship services, to our Lord's Supper, with a clean conscience. Or face illness and even death. I think that should catch our attention. And make us want to do the right thing. About a year ago, I had a doctor to call me. And he said, the tester in, you have prostate cancer. Well, that C word... Automatically got my attention. And then he told me that it was a f- very serious thing. And if I didn't take steps to remedy the situation, that I would eventually be killed by that cancer. Oh, that scared me. That got my attention. I wanted to know what, wh- I wanted to, know what to do to prevent my death. And it became the number one priority in my schedule. It was an important thing. In the same way, if we really believe that the scriptures are the word of God, we say it all the time, but do we really believe it? And, and these scriptures are relevant to our daily lives, then we must pay attention to this passage. We can't just gloss over it. This is serious stuff. So what is it that we need to do? What am I talking about? It's simply called self-examination. In a modern day world where reality is blurred by a myriad of distractions, and it can be very extreme, extremely difficult to take a real gut level look at ourselves. We've spent all kinds of energy and money and effort to distract ourselves from the reality of who we really are. But this is a life or death proposal that we're facing this morning. Can we be real with ourselves? Can we weekly, remember that the Lord's Supper was observed weekly, and, we, and they had uh, services, worship services weekly. Can we weekly examine ourselves and take an honest look at who we are and what God sees in us? Remember the alternatives if we don't do it. I spent several of my early teenage years on a farm in Middle Tennessee. My parents owned about 28 acres of land and about six, five or six of those were cleared for the house and for some pasture, but the rest of it was mine. It was woods and rolling hills and creeks and rocks and everything else. I, you, I, can't, I, I don't have time to tell you all the things I found there in that small part of it. It was my favorite thing to do, especially during the summers. And uh, I would just traipse that land and just feel free, and I'm a loner anyway, so I just had a wonderful time with myself, you know. Uh, but I'd always come home to eat. You can tell I've never missed a meal. And when I did, I had a ritual that I would go through. Uh, I'd always ins- inspect myself for Tick's. Middle Tennessee is famous for wood ticks, and, and, and I usually had some on me when I came home to eat, and my mama didn't want any in the house. So, you know, it, it, was, it was an important thing for me to do. Now, when I found those ticks on me, I didn't ignore them and say, well, they'll, they'll find their way off of me. I didn't pretend that they weren't there. No, I aggressively went after them and took them off my body, and then I would kill the ticks so they wouldn't get on anybody else in my family because it was important. Ticks, although they're small, are dangerous creatures that could make you sick or even kill you. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you know, those things. Sound familiar? That ritual was the first thing that I thought about when I read this scripture on examining yourself, looking for ticks. This is a matter of spiritual and even physical health We must be serious in pursuing this examination. Then we must use the right standard of comparison when we examine ourselves. How do we know what's good or bad? Where do we stand? Who are we comparing ourselves with? The Corinthian church had devolved into a mediocre, watered-down version of Christianity by comparing themselves to the pagan city that they lived around. Oh, Corinth was just spiraling down, spiraling down toward destruction. And the church of Corinth was just staying far enough away from the, the city of Corinth that they felt good about themselves. But all the while, they were spiraling down with them, going further and further away from the standards of God. Now, I, compare my, I can compare myself with an insect on the ground and feel pretty good about myself. But when I compare myself with the holy God of the universe, the creator of all things, the great giver of salvation and eternal life, I fall so very short of His glory and of His plans for me. Now we're talking about works here. But before I lose any of you, I'm not talking about obtaining salvation through works. We received salvation by the grace of God and not of our own works. But the scriptures say for us to, once we are saved, then we should work out our salvation. We should flesh it out by rising toward God's standards, not the standards of the world. That is what is making the church of today weak and ineffective. A growing church is working out, a growing Christian is working out his experience with Christ, and changing his life to be more like Christ every day. Ephesians 2.10, the verse after that great statement about being saved by grace, says that we are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ, which God has prepared ahead of time so that we may walk in them. Yes, we're saved by grace and not of ourselves, but we're also saved for good works, which God has assigned for us and prepared for us beforehand. Does that not thrill you to know that God Almighty has ordained specific work for each of you to do ahead of time? We need to find what this work is and press toward that goal. We have lazily basked in the sun of God's grace far too long. It's time that we pick up the shovel of God's assignments and get to work. And it all starts with an honest examination of who we are, what we're doing, and where we stand. You know, our smartphones have a have a neat app. It's called Maps. If you don't have one, it's the greatest thing. It can instantly give our physical location on the planet Earth. <laughs> That's amazing. It doesn't tell us where we want to be. It doesn't tell us what we wish we are, were, where we wish we were, or even what we're, where we're pretending to be. It gives us a clear vision of where we stand. Now, we need a spiritual app like that that will give us an honest look at where we stand, one that would take away all the trappings of who we think we are, what committee we serve on, how many years we've attended church, how old we are. It would only show where we stand in comparison to God's Word and what He expects of us. Examine yourself. Now, a lot of people get caught up in that judging part of this scripture. And they get bogged down. You know, the world says, don't judge me, don't judge me. And and even some Christians have picked up that chant. There are even scriptures that say we should not judge. But this one says we should judge. So, uh, how do we... How do we balance that? You should know that there's a distinction in the Greek language between the three words for judging found in 1 Corinthians 11. The first found in verse 31 here implies that we are to judge ourselves. We examine in detail who we really are. We come face to face with the the sin areas in our lives and confess that sin to God. If we don't do that, then it says in verse thirty-two, God judges us. That's the second judgment. That judgment is a chastening of His beloved children to discipline them into righteousness. It's like a loving parent disciplining his children in order to keep them from, uh, to keep them to uh, in order to keep them to be to be a better person or to keep them from any danger. The final judgment, found in verse 32, is God's judgment for the lost world. Now, I think this is important for us. This judgment consists of condemnation and destruction. The last two judgments are divine judgments that we should never use. Thus the scriptures that say we are not to judge. In John three eighteen, it says that we, he who does not believe in the Son is condemned already. The church spends precious time condemning the actions of the world when they're just acting like the world. They're acting like lost folks, okay? That it's just a natural thing for them to do. We need to spend more time and spend our efforts turned towards sharing the good news of Christ to the world and not condemning the lost world. They're already condemned. The only consistent judgment, and here's where I'm going to get in trouble, or examination that we should give is first toward ourselves and then toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. How? We should do it with a humble attitude and with the same grace that God has given us. But for the sake of that brother or sister getting right with God, there are times when we must call them out and help them face their sin. You know, there were times when I came home from the woods uh, when I was young and searched for ticks, but I just couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't see all over my body. There were some places I could not examine, and I had to get my mom to come in and look behind my ears and in the nape of my neck and in the, the hairline of my hair just to make sure I needed help with that. Uh, I needed another person to look for in those areas. There are times when we need brothers or sisters in Christ to help inspect us. Again, this is not a condemning judgment, but a humble encouragement. Why would Paul have discussed church discipline earlier earlier in this book if we weren't supposed to inspect and encourage each other? Many years ago, when I was young in the ministry and newly married, I had a friend who was about my age. And he, he was kind of opposite than me. He had been in his business for many years, even though he was young. And he was very successful in his business and had a great command over the people there. But he and I were kind of great friends. And we walked this Christian life and this married life together and shared most things together. Suddenly, I realized that uh, he was pulling away from me. And soon I realized and found out that he had met a young lady and was about to leave his wife for this young lady. Now I'm not a confrontational guy, but after much much prayer and soul searching, I went to see my friend in his office (laughs) in this high-rise building, business building in the heart of Nashville. I can't tell you the trepidation I felt as I went to the top floor of the building and stepped out into his spacious office for the first time. Was I really going to judge or correct this man? For weeks and weeks, my friend had li- been living in a, a love bubble. You know, he, he didn't think of any of the consequences of his sins, anything else. And it was my job to bust that bubble and confront him with his sin. I begged him. I ple- pled with him, please don't disgrace your wife. Please don't disgrace your church. Don't disgrace God's principles. Do the right thing. And thankfully... Thankfully, he accepted my chastisement, and he let go of his girlfriend and remained married to his wife. He's still married today and actively involved in his church. Now, if I had said, you know, I don't have a right to judge my friend. I, I don't know what he's going through. This is not his problem. This is his problem. It's not mine. Then I would have betrayed my friend, and I would have betrayed my church, and I would have betrayed God's principles, his principles of marriage. There are times when we must stand on God's principles and call out the sin of others. James five nineteen through 20 speaks to it in this way. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and, ter- and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. We're to examine ourselves and then we need to examine our brothers and sisters. That's what we're here for. So, as we conclude, I want to do one more thing for, for you, or with you. I want you to clear your desk, get out a pencil and a clean sheet of paper. We're going to take a pop test. You know, the older I get, the more distracted I am, and I, I think about the hereafter more very, all the time. I walk into a room and say, "What? what am I hereafter?" <laughs> I just I get distracted. And when, I, when I, that happens to me, my mantra is always to say, okay, who am I, what am, why am I here, what am I doing? So I want to use those thoughts to help you take your test today. Got your pencils ready? Not really. First of all, I want to ask, who are you? Who are you? It's a simple question, but if you're honest, it can take a, it be a very complicated answer. Take that spiritual GPS that we talked about and pinpoint yourself. Have you ever really placed your faith in Christ and desired to live for Him? Or is all this just a charade for your family or your friends? Remember, this is a life and death situation we're talking about. And if you are a Christian, can you identify yourself? By this, I mean, can you honestly pinpoint where you are in the growth process of a Christian? I'm not talking about how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, how long you've attended church, but let's look at this in comparison to the growth stages of a human being real quickly. We begin as an infant, grow to be a child, then a young adult, and finally a reproducing adult, and we call that a parent. Let me quickly share with you some characteristics of each stage, and then you identify yourself, starting with a spiritual infant who is totally dependent upon others can't feed himself. He's basically, he needs to be led everywhere he goes. They're often confused, these spiritual infants, and they're stubborn. A spiritual, an infant Christian would say things like, well, I don't need anybody else. I can worship just as well in the woods as I can in church. Or it may say, you know, don't all religions worship the same God?" Then we, we see the spiritual child stage where they're self-centered and over it and sometimes underconfident. A spiritual child would say, I, I'm not being fed in the sermons. I think I might look somewhere else or don't change anything. I'm, I, I'm comfortable with the way things are. The spiritual young adult stage begins to understand that God has made them for a purpose. And they begin to look more at the needs of others than their own needs. They find joy in worshiping God and rejoice when others come to know Jesus. A spiritual young adult might say, well, I love my Bible class. But there are others who need to be a part of a Bible study. What can I do? How can I help? Or they may say, you know, it's so neat that so many people are here. I had to walk two blocks from the, the nearest parking space. Isn't that wonderful? Instead of complaining. The final stage is a spiritual parent, and he is intensely focused on producing other growing Christians, and they alter their lives to do so, and you parents can, can identify with that. You have altered your life to make sure a child is grown. That's what a, a spiritual parent is all about. They say, well, I, I, I met a guy at the restaurant today, and he seems really interested and wants to know more about God, I've got his name and I'm gonna follow up with him. Don't give it to a pastor, don't give it to, you follow up on him. I've got, you know, you, uh, or he might say, I'm, I'm encouraged, I'm encouraging Fred to go on a mission, mission trip and I, he says I'll do it, he'll do it if I go with him. We are invested in people growing. Can you identify yourself in any of those stages? And what, if so, what would it take for you to move along that growth chart? Now, the second question I want to ask is, why are you here? What is tr- your true purpose for being here today? If your main purpose isn't to worship God, then we need to make some corrections right here and now. We were made to worship God. That's our main purpose. If you're looking at the, and you're looking at the wrong person to lie about this, you know, I stand right here on Sunday mornings, and I look into your eyes while you worship. pastor is standing there with his, hand, his back to you. He doesn't know. I know who you are, and I know who's bored and who's beaming. Now, now I, I can hear you now. He said, now, Brother John, you know, I, I just don't feel that good about expressing my worship in public and being outwardly emotional. I, 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 I can't do that, and I'll accept that. If your spouse or your friend will tell me that you watched the Rose Bowl this year with the same calm and stoic demeanor that you worshiped in church with this morning. Now listen, we give ourselves, we give our energy, and we give our emotions to that which we truly consider to be worthy of our worship. Check yourself out. Finally, I want to ask, what are you doing What is the purpose for your presence here today? Are you standing on the promises or are you sitting on the premises just taking up space? (laughs) If this church is just a social gathering to you, then you have a fault that needs correcting. If your presence is simply because that's what I always do on Sunday mornings, then we need to look deeper. God has so much for you. And Brother John Mark has been steering our church toward discipleship and church growth. We need to get on board. We need to be growing and reproducing other Christians. So today, I want to challenge you, as the scriptures challenge you here in 1 Corinthians, to examine yourself. Take a good look at the reality of who you are. What do you need to do today to take the next step of growth in your Christian life? Remember, the consequences are dire. This is important. Some of you need to come forward today and take the hand of one of our counselors and say for the very first time that you need Christ in your life. Others need to come to the prayer benches and confess the sin of playing at your Christianity. While living a life in the world that is displeasing to God. Others need to make a commitment to grow in your faith. Whatever the need, as the Holy Spirit's call, please be obedient. As the music comes forward. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.